Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. And joining us on the show today is a very special guest. She is a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and host of the She Thinks podcast, Beverly Hallberg. Beverly is also the founder and president of District Media Group. Beverly, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is my third time on, and it's always a pleasure. Uh, well, it's so fun to have you here, and I love that Kelsey is here with you because I was thinking about you all and how you're both these strong, conservative, problematic women, and all of the things that you all have in common. You both work and write for Independent Women's Forum. You're both podcasters. You go on TV and talk about the news. But you also have adorable dogs that you post pictures of on Instagram. And you got these adorable pets when you all were were still single and living and working in Washington, D.C. And you got them when they were puppies. So advice to single women thinking about getting a dog. Was it a good decision? That's a great question. And just for the record, Kelsey and I both got our dogs at the same time. They were puppies <laughs> at the same time and played together. So we have both seen seen our dogs grow and we both have been married since that time. And so there's been a lot of change. I'm going to let Kelsey start first because I think we both have similar perspectives on this. So Kelsey, what, what advice would you give? Well, first off, Yes, Beverly and I have a lot in common. We actually live close to each other when we used to have puppy playdates. But as cute as our puppies are, they are very problematic. So both our dogs have had pretty serious behavioral problems that we've (laughs) had to hire specialized trainers to address. And I don't know about you, Beverly, but my behavioral issues seem to uh, not be going away anytime soon. Uh, You know, my dog is, gosh, now I have two kids. So I like lose track of how old my dog is. But uh, now that I have kids, these behavior problems have become even more problematic. Um, But that said, you know, I'd say I have an Australian shepherd. Uh, I know your dog is adorable, very cute, but it's a huge responsibility if you're single. um, And, you know, you just have to go in knowing it's it's a huge commitment, especially to do um, on your own. And I know a lot of people say, um, who a lot of people have babies, a lot of moms say they get offended when people compare their dogs to kids. And I'm actually like, no, my dog is actually probably more <laughs> difficult to take care of than my two kids. So I'll just put it that way. <laughs> no, and I, I would like to state for the record, our dogs do not have behavioral issues just because they were raised by single problematic women. That's not why they have behavioral issues. So I have an English bulldog. He was the runt. His litter rejected him. So he mm-hmm. started off on, on a bad note from the beginning. He has some uh, legs that are a little deformed. And so he is my little special needs puppy and I love him dearly but I can say that it is much easier having a dog with a husband because I do travel so not having to do a dog sitter all the time is amazing it's it's not even just the cost but just the time it takes to take a dog and back and also another part of that too is I have a house with a backyard so I would say to any single person and any single woman interested in getting a dog 
make sure you're not in a condo or an apartment that going mm. up and down is very, very difficult. And I would say it's probably better if you don't travel a lot. The travel is hard. It was even hard on my dog because he does have these stresses. He has a lot of anxiety and they're only like one or two dog sitters that he could even go to. I tried doggy daycare, but he would have panic attacks at doggy daycare. <laughs> so he's I'm a sweet you, little soul. <laughs> more difficult than humans. I'm That's telling really you difficult. guys. <laughs> well, this so. is definitely giving me pause because I, I have been one of those people that's like, oh, you know, when I turn 30, maybe I'll just do it. Maybe I'll get a dog. And I'm like, mm, well, Virginia, talk. Maybe not. <laughs> hey, Virginia, we don't live too far away. You are welcome to take Utah for a trial run to see if you are up for it. And if you want to just keep him, I think that could be arranged. <laughs> I do have a funny Utah story. This dog, sweet little boy he is, is so protective of Kelsey's kids that when I went over, he did not want me to touch her daughter. He was oh, like, no, yeah. no. He guards them. He guards. Oh, that's so he's good. Precious. He's a protector. Yeah. It's, luckily, yeah. he's luckily he loves the kids and he is protective of them. It's other people who I have to be careful with. Um, so yeah, he's very loyal. I, points for loyalty. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so sweet. I love it. Well, we have such a good show planned today. I, I know we could just keep talking about the dogs for hours, but I, I am so excited for what we have planned ahead. So Kelsey, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up. Well, Virginia, we're going to do this trial and we will follow up with our, all okay. our listeners yeah, we'll on how it goes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, up on today's Problematic Women, Bev is going to break down Crean Jean-Pierre's performance as White House press secretary and perhaps offer some tips and tricks on public speaking. Plus, Brittany Aldean came under fire after posting a makeup reel. We explain why. The New York Times thinks maternal instincts are a myth that men created. And, as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. So Corrine Jean-Pierre has been the White House press secretary for just over three months. And being White House press secretary is notoriously a hard job. It requires being up to date on every policy issue the president is involved with. You have to be well-spoken, articulate, honest, and transparent, while also keeping sensitive information confidential. Unfortunately, White House press secretary Jean-Pierre has on multiple occasions demonstrated a lack of knowledge on certain important policy issues and has struggled to answer the questions from the press. So Beverly, you started your own media company called District Media Group, and you you teach individuals who work in the policy space how to answer questions from the press, how to go on TV and talk about policy issues. Um, so we're going to talk in a second a little bit about the White House press secretary and kind of get your reaction to um, the job that she's done so far in her first three months in the position. But first, I just want to ask you, how did you gain such a passion for for media and for training people 
how to go on TV and talk about issues. It was never the job that I thought I was going to have. It's not something you think about growing up, say, I'm going to train people how to be on TV. It wasn't <laughs> something that I thought I would do. I actually thought I was going to work for ESPN as a sports broadcaster. Hmm. But what ended up happening, my my dad all, always worked in conservative politics in California. So I was used to working with him on different things and going door to door for candidates. And so I was very involved in conservative politics and just had this opportunity to work at a studio at the Leadership Institute as an intern. And so they wanted to hire me. So I was like, well, I'll go to DC for a couple years. Just, you know, I'll make my way to ESPN. And then I learned along the way that I really enjoyed working on issues that I really cared about. So while at Leadership Institute, they already had media training there. I was trained by actually Heritage's own Genevieve Wood, who was also Mm -hmm. a problematic woman who's been on Mm -hmm. this show and learned from her. And then I worked quite a bit from in a freelance capacity as a producer, uh, as a as an editor. And so I just learned how to interview people. And I realized people just really struggled. And so I just made it my career mission to help those on the conservative side of the aisle to be able to talk about issues. Well, I've always loved communication, loved media, and saw a market void that there weren't media trainers specifically devoted to the conservative side. And so decided to go out on my own and start District Media Group in 2008. And it's been it's been a great ride. I've loved it. Mm, I love that. Well, I know that you know you have trained so many people and worked with so many people over the years and taught them how to be professional in front of uh, in front of a camera as they're answering questions as people are people from the press are pestering them and trying to kind of corner them and ask them hard questions. And so I know that you have thoughts about the White House press secretary and her performance. So, like I said, I, I want to play some clips from Jean Pierre and just kind of ask you to get your reaction action, your feedback. So let's go ahead and play this first clip. This is actually from Jean-Pierre's first press briefing back in May. Uh, And it's a question about inflation and taxing the rich. The president's Twitter account posted the other day, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Mm -hmm. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Um, So... Are you talking about a specific tweet? He tweeted, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Look, you know, we have talked about, um, we have talked about this this past year, uh, about um, making sure that the wealthiest among us are paying their fair share. Um, and that is important to do. And uh, that is something that, uh, you know, the president has been, you know, working on uh, every day when we talk about inflation and lowering costs. And so it's very important uh, that, uh, you know, as we're seeing costs rise, uh, as we're talking about how to, you know, uh, you know, build a, a, a America that's safe, that's equal for everyone and doesn't leave everyone behind. That is an important part of that as well. All right. So Beverly, uh, this was Jean-Pierre's first day on the job. And it was it was her opportunity to show the world that she knows Biden's policies. She can articulate them well. So when when you saw this clip and as you've kind of watched her what have been your thoughts? You know, how if, if you were asked a question like this, how would you have responded? 
There's so much to unpack here. And do keep in mind that Karine Jean-Pierre, she was working underneath Jen Psaki for quite a while. So she was able to see Jen Psaki at work, the former press secretary who was there a little over a year. And regardless of what you think about Jen Psaki, as far as her policy positions, she was an effective press secretary because there was confidence. She knew exactly what she wanted to say. And even if you didn't like the way she said it, some people thought she was a little demeaning with how she interacted with reporters. It was very clear and it satisfied the question. What you're seeing with Karine Jean-Pierre, and I was willing to give her a little bit of a break the first day on the job because this is a very difficult job, Mm -hmm. but the sad reality is it hasn't improved. What we've continued to see in her time as White House Press Secretary is, first of all, her going through that binder and trying to find an answer for questions that you would expect to get. Being asked about inflation or when she is asked, as she was this week, about student loan forgiveness, a very expected question. You shouldn't have to search in your binder for that. That should be on the tip of your tongue. You should be prepared to have not just an answer that would satisfy the question with the narrative that you would like, but to be able to say it with confidence, with no stumbling, so that people can see that you are very sure about what this administration is doing and you're behind it. And so that's where she is faltering. Um, This is just not her gift. This is not her skill. She should not be in this role whatsoever, because for somebody to be in this role, not only do they need to be able to communicate well, they need to communicate with confidence. And I don't think that that is her strength. She struggles on the fly. She doesn't seem to be preparing, or if she is preparing, it's not sticking, and it makes everybody feel uncomfortable. I I disagree with the Biden policies wholeheartedly, but it's very uncomfortable to watch her. And as somebody who is representing the United States as the White House press secretary, I want her to at least to be able to communicate effectively and have to admit she's the worst I've ever seen. Yeah, Beverly, I have to say... I feel a great sense of secondhand embarrassment for yes. her. And the fact that you have conservatives who feel that way, who who honestly feel bad for her because she seems to be struggling so much says a lot about her lack of effectiveness. And I think often many of us feel like we could probably spin these awful Biden administration policies better than uh, she does in many cases. Um, So on that note, let's play another recent clip in which she was asked how President Biden plans to pay for the student loan forgiveness plan. Do you all believe that this this student loan program is fully paid for. And if it's not, why does the president think it was important to have all of his other spending priorities fully paid for to be fiscally responsible, but not this one? So we do, uh, we, so this, again, this is the question that um, uh, my colleague here, uh, Ambassador, got. So it, we have to get a better sense, right, of what we're talking about as far as cost. But let me just let me just say that out loud. She is the she is the domestic policy advisor, and when she was asked that question, so I just want to iterate what she said. Uh, but we do believe it will be fully paid for because of the because of the work that this president has done with the economy. So Beverly, I don't want to do her job for her, especially (laughs) regarding one of the worst policies to come out of this Biden White House. And that does say a lot. But I saw you tweeted, someone still needs media training in regards to that clip. So I'm curious, how could she have answered this question? 
Well, it is difficult because they haven't explained how they are going to pay for it. So there is that that little hiccup, um, which puts her in a bad position. But she could have responded, been prepared to respond something like this. Say, well, we're, we're still crunching the numbers. But what we know wholeheartedly is whenever you make an investment in the future, there is great payoff. So we know that when people are getting education, and then she can go on and say what she wants. Again, I disagree with it. I disagree with the policy. But there are ways to show that, I mean, I would focus on the investment part and what this means for uh, you know investing in our economy when people graduate from college or something like that. Again, I disagree with the policy, but what was so just mind-boggling about this is that is such an expected question. How are you going to pay for this is not a gotcha question. And one of the things I do with my clients, we practice two different skills. We practice a skill of being able to give the talking points that you want. So that is if whether you're in a speech or whether you have some talking points per immediate interview, you know what you want to say in that interview. But we practice something else. The second part, what if you get asked tough questions? How are you going to respond to those tough questions? I don't think she's doing any practice ahead of time doing what people call murder boarding. Happens in politics all the time, whether you're going to be testifying or whether you're going to be in an interview, you murder board uh, politicians, policy advocates, et cetera, because you throw every tough question at them to see if they can seamlessly get to the talking point that they want to. Can you respond well? I don't think she's going through this exercise at all. And I look at this all and ask, how did she get to this position? And I'll even put Kamala Harris in this as well, because she's been horrible at at communicating. I think you have two women who've not been tested. There is the skill of being able to get tough questions, not be flustered by it, having a response, being ready to go. And that comes from being tested over and over and over and over again. The reason why Jen Psaki was good is that she did this at the State Department. She had worked in the Obama administration doing this. I don't think either one of these women have been tested with tough questions, and it's showing in the way they're responding in this administration. Hmm. Well, too much time on MSNBC, right? Exactly. <laughs> Softball questions. Do not prepare you for Peter Ducey. <laughs> right. So, Beverly, of you know, of course, for you know, for so many people, you know, we're maybe not going to be on you know TV and answering questions from the press or going to a hearing. But you know, everyone at some point in their lives or frequently in their lives is giving presentations in school, in boardrooms, at work. So, what is maybe some of the most important public speaking advice you can give our listeners? Just some tips and tricks that sure. you think everyone needs to know about standing in front of a crowd of people and answering their questions? The first tip I would give is just practice. So many people don't want to record themselves, don't want to watch themselves back because they think it goes away if they don't see it. (laughs) As people are very nervous about this, we're all very self-critical. And by the way, one of the most interesting things I've learned in training people over the years is no matter what somebody's job title is, Everybody has insecurities. We all are insecure in at least one way, most of us in multiple ways. So we avoid the practice of it, actually speaking to a camera or recording our audio and listening to it back. If people just spend, so let's say somebody who's newer at public speaking, if you spent 15 minutes a week for the next month or two recording yourself, let's say you're going to introduce somebody, or let's say you have to speak in a staff meeting and you practice what you plan to say, listen to it back, you will start realizing the importance of 
critiquing yourself and making changes. Now, part of the reason why I come in as a media trainer is sometimes people are able to identify what's wrong. They just don't know how to fix it. But it starts by that preparation and that practice. Put it on your calendar. If you do not practice communication, you will not find time to do it. And the second, this is the quickest tip I can give, especially uh, females who struggle with this more than men. If you're nervous, the most important thing you can do is actually project your voice. So as humans, when we get nervous, we tend to get quieter. So our our vocals get quieter and whatever your voice does, your visuals will do. So if this is something where it is public speaking, not a radio interview, people are going to see you. If you want to have engaging body language, engaging facial expressions, you actually need to project your voice because your visuals become brighter as your voice becomes louder. So project your voice. It's a volume as if, let's say, 10 people are in the room with no microphone. What volume would you use? And automatically, you're going to sound and look more confident. Because even think about people who it's their job to communicate. Think about radio hosts, TV hosts, people who speak for a living. They're not quiet. They project their voice. And it's not about blasting people's ears. It's about seeming confident. And volume helps you get there. Absolutely. Uh, Such practical advice. Beverly, thank you. Well, stay tuned for our listeners because up next we're going to talk about why Brittany Aldean has enraged the radical left. It's not too hard these days. But uh, first... You all know that we have been promoting the wonderful She Thinks podcast here on the show. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, while we have the host of the show, I should ask her to share a little bit about the She Thinks podcast. So, Beverly, would you just take a second and share with us your passion, your mission for She Thinks and uh, and a little bit just about the show and what uh, listeners can expect if they give it give it a try? I was realizing it. We've been doing She Thinks for a little over three years now. And so every Friday. We have a new episode. I don't believe we've missed one Friday in the entire time that we've done this. Kelsey has filled in for me before when I've gone on vacation. <laughs> when I got married, she she filled in very graciously. But the point of She Thinks is to bring on both men and women uh, and have them talk about issues that they're working on. So at the end of the month, we always have a policy focus. So IWF deals with a lot of policy issues. So we break it down. What does this mean? For example, our most recent one was talking about why is gas so expensive? We We hear a lot of narratives out there, but we went through the history of the oil and gas industry and the reasons why gas is so high and what we can do about it. So there's that educational component. But we also have really interesting guests on. We've had Tucker Carlson on. We've had authors come on. We had an author come on before to talk about menopause and what women should should prepare themselves for as they're (laughs) facing it. And so it's really to have an educational format on different issues that really matter to people. So we, we highlight a bunch of different topics. And it's just a really good time to to be able to talk to somebody for roughly 20 to 30 minutes each week. And so that everybody can be more informed. And hopefully what people can take with it as well is realizing that um, it's an unfiltered conversation. So I play devil's advocate. I ask the questions that are for the person's perspective, but also against it, because I want people to think for themselves and to also be able to communicate what they think to others. Mm, she thinks I love it. Subscribe. You can get the show on Apple Podcasts wherever you like to listen. Be sure to check it out. It comes out every Friday morning. But uh, let's go ahead and dive into this next topic. Well, social media has lost its mind once again. And this time it's because Brittany Aldine said that she's glad that her parents did not transition her to a male when she went through her tomboy phase. 
Brittany Aldean is the wife of country singer Jason Aldean, big fan of. And over <laughs> the weekend, she posted an Instagram reel of her putting makeup on. The caption read, I'd really like to thank my parents for not changing my gender when I went through my tomboy phase. I love this girly life. And then singer Marion Morris, she responded on Instagram writing, you know, I'm glad she didn't become a boy either because we really don't need another expletive dude in the world. Sucks when Karens try to hide their homophobia slash transphobia behind their protectiveness of the children. So other stars have weighed into this conversation. But the thing that I love that Brittany Aldean is not doing is that she's not apologizing for stating the truth because it's so it's so ridiculous that people are offended that a woman is simply stating that she's glad that she's still a woman. I mean, Beverly and Kelsey, I would love to get y'all's reactions to this. Well, I'll, I'll jump in first. I will admit I didn't know who Brittany Aldine was. I assumed <laughs> she was married to the country star because I knew the last name. Um, but I was like, I have no idea who this is. But I appreciate her comments. Um, I do admire the fact that she didn't back down. She didn't apologize. And something she did well that we can take for our own communication with people is she went back on Instagram and responded to some of the, the comments by Marin, who which she put out there. And she said... Well, you can't uh, buy cigarettes until you're 18. You can't join the military till you're 18. You can't drink until you're 21. Why do we have no limits on when children are allowed to say that they're a different, they feel a different sex than they are? And so she came with some data, some facts, some examples, some comparisons to help people think. And so it's always good to arm yourself with that type of counter argument. So it puts into perspective what we're really talking about. So I, I, Admired the fact that she didn't back down, and I'm continue to be disappointed that people want to so blatantly um, hurl insults at others for saying something as mild as she did about being thankful that during her tomboy stage, her parents didn't tell her that she needed to be a different sex. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, this transgender craze, it's so significantly affecting preteen and teen girls. We've interviewed Abigail Schreier on the show to talk about her book, Irreversible Damage. And she discusses this trend among groups of girls that all kind of decide together that they're transgender and they want to transition to male. And Kelsey, you have produced a series of very profound and truly heartbreaking documentaries for Independent Women's Forum talking about this. We've had you on the show to talk about it. And um, the most recent video that uh, you have produced just came out. And um, it's a mom who shares, you know, not only what's happening in her daughter's life, but also really in her whole community, how this transgender craze is affecting so many individuals. So let's go ahead and listen to just a clip from this video. On our cul-de-sac, there are eight girls total and about half of them are wanting to change their identity in some way and then my daughter's school she has at least 10 friends going through this so that uh that voice that you were just hearing is a mom named Susie who lives in Alaska with her family her husband um and her daughter's school has begun socially transitioning her daughter to male, and they've told Susie and, and her husband that um, there's really nothing that they can do to, to stop that social transition. So, Kelsey, 
I want to ask you, you know, what what has it been like to sit with moms like Susie, to talk with them, to hear their story of what their child is going through and also hear how the public school system and the state is treating them as parents? It's been devastating. This is a very heavy project I've been working on for months now. And it's interesting because all the parents who I've spoken with have faced similar experiences in which they've been betrayed by all these different institutions, their public schools, mental health professionals, so-called support groups. Um, And they really feel helpless in fighting against it because in all of these cases, these young girls are facing mental health issues where they do actually need help and support. But instead of grounding them to reality and taking guidance from the parents, when they say, we do not believe our our daughter is transgender, she is struggling with perhaps anxiety, depression, um, eating disorders, um, all sorts of all sorts of things that sadly many young girls struggle with at a young age. These institutions are enabling them to live this unreality that they're actually a boy. And in the case of Susie, which Susie is not her real name, understandably, uh, very few parents are in a position to speak on the record about this. Um, But she did very bravely put her face on camera so you can see she is a real person experiencing this. And of course, I verified everything about her story. The school actually began socially transitioning her daughter behind her back. She only found out when she found her daughter's student ID with this made-up male name on it. Mm. Um, And then when she went to confront the school, the school told her she has no right to dictate what her daughter is going to be referred by in school. And they even went so far as to change her name in the parental portal, online parents' portal, Um, and the the section with her daughter's name is grayed out, so she can't even change it if she wanted to. Uh, The school in Alaska is using Title IX as a defense, which we know the Biden administration is proposing these sweeping changes to Title IX that would uh, allow gender identity to uh, be protected, Uh, but those are not actually in effect yet, and so schools using that as as a shield is, is... is really just a complete erosion of parental rights. Um, so I we we do need to give parents uh, like Susie in Alaska so much credit for putting a face to this issue because understandably for so long while this was happening, parents were suffering in silence. Um, we heard we heard stories, but until you actually see faces, it's easy to pretend this isn't real. It's easy to say a school would never do that behind my back. I could never be sending my daughter out the door, watching her walk into school as a girl and then being treated as a boy inside. That's very much what's happening. These parents are being betrayed. They feel alone. It is devastating and it is just unacceptable. It needs to be stopped. Beverly, I know that this is an issue that you have not shied away from. You know, why do you think that uh, our policymakers, specifically uh, Democrats, aren't willing to 
actually have real conversations about this issue and talk about parental rights and talk about, um, you know, the fact that you know, we need to wait until you know at least a child is 18 before they're making irreversible decisions about their body. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why you do have the name calling and the shaming by people who think you're just transphobic for having this perspective, the reason why that shaming happens is because they want people to stay silent. And mm-hmm. I wish I could say, oh, because I, I speak against this and IWF is a huge advocate for women and speaking against those who want to erase us. It, the reality is we're paid to do this. So it doesn't harm our job. It helps our job to talk about the issues of the day. And a lot of people are fearful that they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose friends, uh, that they lose a lot by speaking up and What I am encouraged by is I do think as more and more people do speak up and you see parents like this brave woman that Kelsey talked to and the other parents that she's talked to, as parents speak up and are willing to speak out, they're going to find that more and more people are willing to do that. So I do think that we are are going to see the rise of the parent, which has nothing to do with their political affiliation. But people think that they should have parental rights, that the school should not take that away. COVID exposed a lot of the indoctrination and the manipulation going on in schools. So that's one side benefit of what COVID showed us. And I think you see parents more involved than ever. So I'm hoping that the pendulum will swing in the other direction towards parents being involved and unions not having that same strength within the school system to try to scare parents away and say that parents aren't part of this. Yeah. Yeah, And I want to note that almost all of the parents that I interviewed uh, are lifelong liberals. Uh, They very much have aligned themselves with the Democrat Party, and they also feel betrayed by them, by a political party they uh, spent their entire lives supporting. And I I think an important takeaway from a lot of these stories is this is such a huge issue that I understand there's massive disagreement on. Personally, uh, I believe that it is manipulating and mutilating children when doctors are medically transitioning them. And unfortunately, we know a, a large chunk of the children who socially transition, if that is a thing, go on to medically transition. So there's a great medical risk we're talking about here. But where we should all be able to agree, uh, no matter where you stand on this issue, is that parents should have the right to know what is happening to their child when they send them to school. No Mm -hmm. school should be going so far as to intentionally deceive parents to lead them to believe they are treating their daughter as a girl when really behind closed doors, they're treating their daughter as a boy, which is exactly what happened in the case of Susie. The school was communicating with her about her daughter, using her daughter's birth name, using female pronouns, and then behind closed doors, treating her as a boy. So I really hope that's one of the major takeaways from this most recent video we released. You can watch them all, IWF.org. They are under the umbrella of the Identity Crisis series. Um, but yes, I believe I hope this is an, um, one takeaway where we can find some agreement that no schools should be doing this behind parents' backs. 
Yeah, it's a conversation that we have to be having. It's so critical for the future of all of our kids, for the future of the next generation. So, Kelsey, thank you for your work with Independent Women's Forum to get the word out, to make people aware who who might not be, who have kids in public school who might be exposed to this. Uh, So, again, if you want to watch those videos, you can visit IWF.org. But we have another conversation that I'm really excited to have involving the role of parents in a little bit of a different capacity. Uh, But it's a very interesting op-ed from the New York Times that was just published last week. So this piece is titled, Maternal Instinct is a Myth That Men Created. The author, Chelsea Conaboy, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, writes, Where did the idea that motherhood is hardwired for women come from? Is there a man behind the curtain? In a sense, there is a man behind the curtain. Many of them, actually. The notion that the selflessness and tenderness babies require is uniquely ingrained in the biology of women ready to go at the flip of the switch is a relatively modern and pernicious one. It was constructed over decades by men selling an image of what a mother should be, diverting our attention from what she actually is, and calling it science. So this author goes on to talk about people like Charles Darwin, psychologists, William McDougall, conservative politicians, Christians, and they say that all of these individuals, they are, and and groups in general, they are responsible for this notion that women innately have maternal instincts. So Kelsey, I want to ask you first, as a mom, getting your perspective, what do you think about this? Is uh, there an extent to which the maternal instinct is a man-made invention. What do you think? I think this is another example of the left-denying biology. And in this case, like many others, it's completely offensive to women and moms. Clearly, there is a massive biological factor um, in becoming a mother. Um, You know, our, our bodies create and carry this child. And then once the child is born, our bodies care for it. Of course, you know, not every woman and not every mother uh, does this, but it is literally what our bodies were designed to do. And to give you one example of how obvious the biological reality is, um, is if, if you are a mother who is breastfeeding your child, your body is able to basically communicate with your child to feed that child. Your body is able to self-regulate itself um, because you do have these maternal instincts that can tell you when your child is hungry um, and then and then produce milk to feed your child and keep your child alive. So that is like a basic and obvious example of a maternal instinct. But the idea that a woman at the New York Times wants to do this, I guess, takedown piece to, um, to, I, I guess, try to make the case that maternal instinct isn't real. It's kind of baffling. And I would also just point everyone to this great book that I, um, I read by Abigail Tucker. It's called Mom Genes. And it's a book that actually gets into the hard science b- behind our maternal impulses, and goes through the biology and psychology of motherhood. And when I was reading this piece, I kept thinking back to that book and what Abigail Mm -hmm. Tucker would have to say, because it is 
there there are so many fascinating examples. We have only scratched the surface into what maternal instinct actually is from a scientific and biological perspective. But if you're a mother, you know it's real. And if you are a human, you also know it's real because somehow – you know, mothers have been able to birth children and keep them alive before the <laughs> internet existed, before we had medical professionals and and everyone in the blogosphere to tell us how we do it. Yep. Somehow we just got it done. Uh, well, I'm going to have to add that book to my list. That sounds great. But Beverly, what did you think of, of this argument that is made um, in this New York Times piece, essentially saying that, uh, you know, this is just an invention to think that, you know, women really have this um, unique and innate kind of mothering instinct? Well, it's laughable. I think most people who saw this headline uh, read hate read it uh, because we all know that it is not true. Look at nature. So we know the phrase mama bear. If somebody is a mama bear, look at bears in the wild. You don't mess with a mother's baby cubs. You just don't do that because she's going to come at you. Uh, I also think of the fact that when you look at single parents, the majority of single parents are females. It's women who raise their child, not the men typically, because of the strong connection they have. And also just the, as Kelsey was saying, the function of the mother is providing food in many cases uh, to their child. And so I just chalk this up to people still trying to erase women, trying to change what makes us unique, not what makes us better than men, but what makes us unique. And I think it's coming at an interesting time because not only are fertility treatments going up, so I have no problem talking about the fact I got married at 41 and I am now 42 and my husband and I are seeing how we could potentially have kids. I know so many women in my situation are trying to figure out, am I going to adopt? Is there any help that I can get? Fertility treatments that those companies are making so much money. But even beyond that, even celebrities, even celebrities are celebrating motherhood these days. Kim Kardashian with four kids. Now she does through surrogacy and there's a lot we could talk about all of that, but loves being a mom, talks about being a mom. Beyonce celebrating her children. I remember when she had twins and was pregnant with them in this photo shoot that was done. And so I think there has been a rejection of where feminism has gone wrong in the past decade, where early on in feminism gone wrong, it was you have to have a career and shun marriage and shun children. And women started waking up to say that's not fulfilling. Most of us do want to get married. Most of us do want to have kids. And you saw celebrities even showing the importance of that. So I think it's fascinating the juxtaposition of this writer talking about this while even celebrities who don't necessarily adhere to these family values that conservatives would look to, but they're celebrating motherhood. And so I think most people just on the surface find it laughable because we all know innately that what what she is saying is wrong, that motherhood and this desire for motherhood is not just some myth that men man has created to ruin our lives, which is essentially what she's <laughs> saying. Yeah, well, and I was so frustrated reading the piece because I think it highlights this lie that has permeated society that says if you, as a woman, choose to embrace your maternal instincts and choose to be a mom and be a full-time stay-at-home mom, that you're choosing to be a second-class citizen. And I think that's such 
a dangerous and damaging lie to women. Of course, all of our lives are so different. The journeys and the paths that God has us on are all so different. And for some women, that is what they feel called to do. That's what they need to do. And to essentially say that, uh, you know, you're kind of an oddball out or you're strange um, or even that you're less than for choosing to do that is is so damaging and so dangerous. Yeah, and to... Build on a one point Beverly made earlier, how this is one piece of the larger attempt to erase women or at least erase biological differences between men and women. If you waste your time reading this entire piece, which I can't believe the New York <laughs> Times long. even published it's long. <laughs> so long, you get to the end and you learn what the entire point was. And it, it's all political. So the second to last sentence reads, maybe one can hope it will help lawmakers in Washington to finally pass paid parental mm. leave, something so mm. critical to family well-being that the United States is just one of six nations that fail to offer it. Perhaps this new story will help us talk parent to parent a bit more honestly about just how it feels to become one. Well, first off, um, only women can become by <laughs> mothers. Uh, uh, only only women can birth children. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, that's the point. This is all political, and it is part of this larger attempt on behalf of the left to uh, push their policies. And it's interesting that in order to advocate for a policy such as paid parental leave, they essentially need to demean and degrade women to the point of saying you don't have special powers because you are a woman you don't have and and I believe maternal instinct is a special power Um, (laughs) having been there and done that um, they're just saying you're equal and therefore we need these policies and one of the things I've thought in relation to this, and that even is going with the, the leave that you talk about, I think this is an attempt to separate mothers from children. They want as much as possible, whether it's in the education system, or in this case, you can think of pre-K, daycare, all of those things, separating mothers from children, so that it is actually other people who are educating their children. So I think that there's a larger effort to just try to remove children from their parents altogether. Wow. These are such important conversations to have. Thank you both. Really appreciate just kind of you sharing your, your thoughts and your insights on that. Cause yeah, it's it's scary that we are finding ourselves having to have these conversations. Um, but stay tuned because up next, we're going to crown our problematic woman of the week. As I approached the walkway from around the back of the building, they had taken um, crowbars to almost all of our windows, two of our doors, and just shattered all of the glass. That's the voice of Susan Campbell, executive director of Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. In the early hours after Roe v. Wade was overturned, vandals smashed windows and spray-painted threatening messages outside the center. I'm Virginia Allen. The Daily Signal has just released a documentary about what happened to the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. Plus, we take a deep dive into the violence and attacks against crisis pregnancy centers across the country. Make sure that you're subscribed to The Daily Signal's YouTube channel so you can watch the new documentary and never miss our new content. Now it is that time once again, our favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... 
J.K. Rowling. So Marie Claire recently published a perfectly titled piece that reads, Why is J.K. Rowling considered problematic? <laughs> the answer we find out is because J.K. Rowling believes that men should not be able to decide if all of a the sudden they are women. J.K. Rowling believes that men who say they are women and enter women's locker rooms or bathrooms and other spaces actually pose a threat to women. She has some very rational thoughts on this that uh, have certainly got her in trouble for. It's no surprise that the left has now themselves crowned her problematic uh, because that's exactly how they have viewed her through all these years to the point that they basically tried to cancel her from her own Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's wild. And I love the fact that she's not backing down. You know, she got pushed back from the very first time. She just started liking uh, some some tweets that could have been seen as controversial on this issue. And people started sort of raising their eyebrows. And she has just dove in deeper and really said, no, I'm going to speak the truth on this. A man just can't all of a sudden decide that he's a woman. So amazing for, for J.K. Rowling to actually stand by her convictions on this and stand by the truth. Absolutely. Well, Beverly, we wanted to thank you so much for joining our show this week. It was a very fun episode recording with you. I had so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both so much for being here. This was great. And with that, we're going to leave it there for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world and would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.